Thank you for joining me today. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite things to use in therapy that helps guide the framework for how I work with the vast majority of my clients. I primarily work from something called attachment theory, and we're going to be looking through this today. Um, And we're not just going to be looking at the theory itself, but how it builds our life story and how we can see the ways that our past have affected us and changed the way that we interact with other people. I'll give some context to what attachment theory is, and I'll include links and directions if you'd like to research more of this yourself. Attachment theory comes from researchers Bowlby and Ainsworth in the 1970s. They conducted this experiment that has been cemented in psychology textbooks all over the country and all over the world. Their experiment was called the strange situation, and it worked like this. There was a one-way mirror in which researchers got to observe a playroom on the other side. Now, in that playroom, you would have a mother and her child mother and this child would sit in the room and start playing, and then at some point, the mother would stand up and walk out. That child would then be observed, and the researchers would note how they handled distress. Then, a stranger would walk in the room and attempt to console the child. That was also another point of observation. Was the child able to be consoled by a random stranger? Eventually, that stranger left, and mother returned. When the mother returned, there was the largest chance to gain an understanding of the connection between a mother and her children. This is where these researchers got to peer into the dynamics that happened outside of the research effort itself. The way that these children were able to be soothed or not able to be soothed by their parent, denoted which category they were filtered into. Now, these three categories are pretty straightforward. The first one is secure. The second one is insecure anxious. And the third is insecure avoidant. There is a fourth category. It's called disorganized. That tends to be one that's a catch-all where a child doesn't squarely fit in one of those three previous ones, but we'll put that aside for now. Each of these three categories of children showed these particular patterns that seemed to follow from what the child had experienced before. I'll give you an outline of each of these three categories of children and how they tend to play out over time. Let's start with the secure child. The secure child has the most positive responses out of the three. And when the mother leaves the room, the child reasonably becomes distressed, crying, looking around, trying to find their mother. Then when a stranger comes in and tries to play with them, they are unable to feel resolution and continue to be upset. Then when the stranger leaves and mom comes walking back in, The secure child becomes attached to that mother and is able to be soothed and go back to playing. This is a distinct difference from the other two categories that we'll get into here shortly. But the important thing here is that the child missed their mother. They were unable to be soothed by a random stranger. 
And once the mother returned, they were able to stabilize themselves and return to what they were doing, showing a sense of safety and understanding and how the relationship would work. The next is the insecure, anxious child. Now, they show very similar responses at the beginning of this cycle, but they vary widely at the end. When the mother's in the room with the child, they play along with the mother. They would do much the same thing that you would see in the secure child. Mom leaves, they become distressed, and then the stranger comes in. These children would also not be able to be soothed by the stranger, and their anxiety would be heightened. Once the stranger left, mom would come back in, and we start to see the first divergence that's incredibly important. Here, when mom began to soothe the child, a few different things would happen. One thing would be that the child would attempt to be soothed, but would be unable to be fully soothed. They would latch on to the mother and refuse to play. Another outcome that we would see is that when mother returned, child became angry and began to punish mom by hitting or yelling. From this, we saw a dynamic where the child was unsure what the outcome would be. This is different from the secure child in which they expected their mother to come back and were able to resume playing. This insecure, anxious child was unsure what would happen and ended up trying to control the situation by either over-engaging with their mother or giving them a consequence for their action. Now, these children didn't understand this on a higher level. This was all just their instinct. The final category is the insecure, avoidant child. This is one that people tend to latch on to, but is actually incredibly rare. The insecure, avoidant child would come in with their mom and play, but when mom left, they showed little to no concern. When the stranger came in, they acted as if not much had changed. They might actually engage slightly more with this stranger that walked in the room. Then when the stranger left and mom returned, it was much the same. We began to understand that this insecure avoidant child is someone who became quite sure of what their mother would do. They are very similar to the secure child and they have a consistent understanding of how the interaction would work. And instead of being assured in the positive, they're assured in the negative and have learned to adapt from that. The other basic thing that's important to know about the strange situation and attachment theory are the four basic needs that are met throughout our entire life. The first one is the secure base. The secure base is a solid foundation to launch from. It helps us interpret and understand the world around us. Early on with kids, it's their parents. Their parents tell them what's true in the world. Their parents help them understand what's happening, and kids use all outside information through the lens of that secure base, their parents. The second basic need is the safe haven. This is where we run to when things go bad. When we're scared or overwhelmed, we go somewhere to become soothed. You can see this in little children. When they trip and fall, they go running to one of their parents, sometimes both. 
and they go to help feel assured of where they are in the world and that things can be okay. The third basic need is proximity maintenance. Proximity maintenance is the ability to measure and mitigate the distance from the child to the secure base. You can see this a lot with kids on the playground. And they go and play and they go up and down the jungle gym, they go on the slide, they come back and they either check on mom and dad or they'll look from the top of the jungle gym to make sure mom and dad are still there and paying attention. This is incredibly important because it helps children safely create distance but also know that their safe place or their secure base is still there. The last basic need is separation distress. How is it that a child deals with overwhelming feelings of distance? What is it that they do to try to soothe themselves or gain reassurance from others? These four basic needs are seen in the strange situation. When a parent is present, how does the kid understand themselves in the world? When the kid is overwhelmed, who is an appropriate safe haven? Is it their mother or is it the stranger? In proximity maintenance, you can see where in the secure child, they would go play, but the insecure, anxious child would have to deal with that proximity by either over-attaching or demanding attention through hitting or screaming. And in separation distress, the insecure, avoided child would feel little to no distress. The secure and the insecure, anxious child would feel that distress, but the secure child was able to deal with it. The anxious one was not. I know this is a lot of information, but these basic ideas are important to understanding how our life story is built. As a child, our four basic needs and our attachments are entirely built on parents and or caregivers. We use our relationship with our parents to understand the world. When we're overwhelmed, we go to them. When we're scared, we go to them. We need to understand something, or we need to make sure we feel safe. All of that goes through our parents. As we get older, though, things start to change. Our basic needs aren't just met in a literal way anymore. They can start to become somewhat symbolic. As kids enter school, and they get more towards the middle school age, that secure base starts to become less and less connected to the parents and more and more connected to the friends. You can see this a lot in young teenagers when they start saying, mom and dad, you don't get it. My friends get it. That is a secure base that's attached to friends. This is a normal developmental thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. But it's important to understand where kids are getting their information from a developmental perspective. When they're scared or overwhelmed, you go talk to their friends. When they need to feel close, deal with that proximity maintenance, they have cell phones for that. So they can always keep in touch with friends. As we get older, our basic needs are met in even more symbolic and representational ways. You can start to see this a little bit in older teenagers when they move from people having to talk to them, friends in particular, and they start needing specific people to talk with them. 
they'll say things like, why didn't you call or text me back? That separation distress is too much. Proximity maintenance needs to be held and you need to text me every five minutes. As a grown adult, that sounds absurd. To a teenager, that's how they're understanding relationship and safety in the world. Now, do kids go overboard with it? Oh, yeah, obviously. But the important thing here is to understand how that is built. As we get a little bit older, things become more complex and they carry more meaning. Sometimes a gift of flowers for a loved one is great, and sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes a date is a wonderful idea, but the timing is off. You see, these attachments, these bids for connection, end up being less and less about the literal thing that's happening, and the circumstances around them become important. What they represent becomes incredibly important. As we get older, those connections start to be more intertwined with other things in our lives. Did you buy me flowers because you care about me or because you did something wrong? Do I believe you did something wrong? Why would I believe that? Is it from our relationship or a previous one? As we move forward into adulthood, our relationships become increasingly complex and we start to relate all of these little representational interactions to meaning bigger things. You see this as a big problem with people that are quote-unquote impulsive or emotional. Maybe they over-understand or they over-imply meanings of things. What is a literal gesture to someone could end up being highly representational to another person. Now, what does this have to do with building our life story? No matter how old we are, we always have to meet those four basic needs, whether it's as children with our parents, as a little bit older with friends, and even older as a significant other. We always need those four things. Problems show up when we weren't given those safe places. The interesting thing about the three types of attachment that I spoke about earlier is they tend to persist. They tend to keep up over time. Generally, they can trend towards secure, but you're more likely to continue with what you're on than to try to find a secure base with no intentional intervention. If you don't make any real change, and maybe it's your parents make no real change, then you're likely to stay in the same place that you found yourself earlier. This begins to create problems. Let's say as a child, you had an anxious or an insecure anxious attachment to a caregiver. You're likely to continue that with friends and with a significant other. In a practical way, in ways that I've seen in my own practice, there are many clients whose childhoods were inconsistent. They weren't sure whether their parents were going to show up or not, either literally or emotionally. They weren't sure whether they were going to have secure attachments. And so instead of doing guesswork and having to create consequences like hitting mom and dad, they'll start enforcing relationships. Instead of taking a risk on whether mom and dad will show up, we make grand gestures to ensure connection. There are all kinds of threats that can be made and they should be taken seriously. But one incredibly important thing to consider is that these larger gestures or concerns, whether that's 
drug abuse or threats of suicide or whatever it is might not be just mental health issues only. They might be an extension of our attachment. Who's going to say no to someone who is threatening to end their life? While it might not be the safest connection, it might not be one that is genuine, you can almost guarantee it. In a twisted way, the more sick you are, the more that you can guarantee people will stick around, even if it's not as genuine as you really need. Those avoidant children, they begin to come to a conclusion that none of the world is safe and they should keep themselves closed off. That certainly creates a problem because everybody needs connection. And without it, they begin to feel unstable. They begin to only focus on themselves and what they believe. And so as adults, they find themselves heavily disconnected. They don't feel like they can take the risk of trusting someone else. It's not that they're even enforcing it or begging for it to happen. They just refuse to take the risk in the first place. Those two categories can move to secure. Depending on where you are in this age range, there's different understandings or different ways that you can handle it. When you're a child, you need to have secure parents or caregivers. They need to be emotionally stable and receptive. They need to be able to talk things out. If a child learns that relationships are volatile from their parents or from the people around them, they'll come to assume that that's how you gain relationship. Why would I want a secure relationship, one that is calm or quote-unquote boring, if all I've ever seen is chaos? Because doesn't chaos equal love at that point? Isn't that how you're supposed to do it? For those children, you have to learn to slow down. Be open about things, but not overreach boundaries. Those children can become secure. If you remember earlier, I said most people can trend towards secure attachment if they are given support. For those children, if they're avoidant, they need to have significant intervention. For those anxious children, they also need great intervention, but they need stability in parents first. For those secure kids, of course, they can veer off course, but they actually have the most successful mental health outcomes out of anyone. Now, if I were to ask you, when it comes to the insecure, anxious, or insecure, avoidant children, which ones have the worst mental health outcomes long-term? Typically, people tend to guess the avoidant, but that's actually wrong. It's the insecure, anxious children, the ones whose parents gave double meanings or said one thing and meant another, or there were underlying rules that weren't spoken. Children whose parents were wholly inconsistent on how they responded to them, or were quite childlike themselves. Those children are the ones who have the most significant mental health disorders later on in life. It's not because they didn't have any sort of connection, it's because the world was so shaky and the ground was so unstable they weren't able to find a middle ground. They weren't able to secure themselves. And so they go through life with issues such as anxiety and depression because there's no center to come to. Those avoidant children, while they do miss secure attachment and they're unable to form the deeper connections, at least they, quote unquote, know what will happen and can adapt. Almost every client that I've seen in my therapy practice 
has experienced some sort of insecure, anxious attachment. Now, of course, that's not 100%, but it is nearly 100% when I have worked in facilities or outpatient clinics. I've never met a client whose family also didn't need help. And these insecure, anxious children have carried this inconsistency and fear for the future into their adulthood. Does that mean that we can blame parents for their adult children acting out? Well, no. Adults can make their own decisions. But it is important to know where we came from. If I have a client in my office who's worried about their ability to connect to their spouse and they are unsure how to handle things, it would be disingenuous to tell them to just slow down and deal with it. That's not a safe place. I have to honor where they came from and the story that they told themselves. And that's the last piece of this attachment theory that I use in my own therapy practice and that I'd offer to you. With all of these pieces set forward, what was the story that you told yourself over the years? Why was it that there was connection or disconnection? Was it your fault? If you're a child and you experience turmoil in your home, you're likely to think it's, it was your fault. It's not because you yourself are particularly screwed up, but that's just how children think. How did that story develop into friendships? Did you carry a scarlet letter or a chip on your shoulder from the way that you were raised that then developed into friendships and then to significant others? That's important to know in therapy and self-development. When you're looking for how to make change in the future, you absolutely need to change your lens. You need to change your view on how you see adult relationships. But without the context of the past, that anxiety will still persist. We can't blame our parents for our problems. But without understanding them, we lack the gumption. We lack the power to make lasting change. And that's what attachment theory is useful for. It helps us understand these stories that we've built. If you're looking to go to therapy, I hope you find a therapist who can provide a version of the four basic needs, the secure base, the safe haven, proximity, maintenance, and separation distress. Now, your therapist should not be your friend. They certainly should not be your significant other. And of all ethical questions out there, I hope that they are not your parent. But... They can provide a little window into what safe relationships look like in terms of boundaries and expectations. Are they clear with what's required? Are they able to be reached within a reasonable manner? Is this scheduling something that can work for you and you can deal with the time in between sessions? Do you feel like you're supported and you can run and process things if you need to? Are you given the information that you need to make reasonable decisions? That's what I use in my practice. I want clients to be able to understand themselves and use our relationship to help look at the other relationships they have and develop those into healthy ones and then no longer need my relationship at all. Attachment theory can give us all of these wonderful insights into ourselves. Take the time to go back and look through attachment theory. Those links will be provided and you can go and find connections out from there, but see how those four basic needs are being met in your life. Sometimes they are met with people 
And sometimes they are met with things or addictions. Sometimes people find that those around them are so unsafe that they need to find connection and support at the bottom of a bottle. Try considering those four basic needs in something like drinking. Is drinking the secure base where you interpret the world, the safe haven that you run to? Do you deal with proximity maintenance and making sure it's nearby? How do you deal with being away from drinking and things like withdrawals? Obviously, addiction isn't the only thing that we can have an attachment to, but it's worth considering if we don't have an attachment to someone healthy in our lives, we're going to have to find someone or something who is unhealthy and deal with things from there. Thank you for listening in today. I hope that you've gotten something that was useful to you, something that you can use to interpret your own life and help make sense of things or further your own process in therapy. If you feel the need, you can leave a tip. If not, that's perfectly fine. I hope you share this podcast and this episode with those around you so that you can help those that might not be able to afford therapy or could use a little extra boost. 